Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to the Creationarium, where we deep dive into the aquarium of human creativity and ingenuity. I'm your host, Aaron, from the Thrush and Treasure Podcast, and in our 49th episode with the Queen, Caroline O'Connor, I lightly touched upon a story from the Australian film industry, and so I've spun that off into a new show, as you do, where we'll expose the hidden figures and stories where people have banded together to create something magical. And so in this first season, we're going to flesh out the little known story of how the Power Rangers accidentally saved the Australian film industry. And joining me for this cinematic adventure is one of the mighty movie Power Rangers himself. He's a sound technician who was one of the many inexperienced crew members thrown into the deep end to create Australia's first big-budget CGI-laden film. But it was their individual expertise that exercised and exorcised that aforementioned inexperience when the Aussie can-do attitude took over. But I don't want to spoil all the good bits, so here to continue his story from last episode is Mr. Paul Matthews. Yeah, so they were slowly but surely encroaching on our space all the time. They would start taking over more things and they'd start taking over power feeds in particular, which used to be my problem because I was head electrician of the site at the time. And so, yeah, it's just, we were the last of the old hurrah. You know, we're going to we're gonna do this the old-fashioned way and that's the last thing that was ever done at that site, the old-fashioned way. Everything after that was done the Fox Studios way. Now, because obviously, as we, we've, we've talked about, this was the the birth of, of this studio, which is now getting used for Marvel movies, Alien Covenant and... Use of that site, it's been up and down. It, it gets yeah. used a lot nowadays for commercials and things, and it, it is getting used for some of the big productions that are still running in Sydney, but... It's not how I remember it. I would walk in there and remember it. Something like Moulin Rouge, which I did. Every space in that place was taken up with a big Moulin Rouge set at the time. We had other buildings and sites, model shops and so on off-site. And you don't get that now. Even on the big Marvel films, they'll build one big set and everything else is done in the box. Everything else is done in the box. They just don't build sets like that anymore. So when they say, oh, this studio is going to shoot this film, I say, well, it might be a shoot that lasts six weeks and takes up one pavilion, whereas uh, back in our day, we were taking up 12 pavilions and it took six months. So yep. and there would be, you know, like 500 people working on the site. So Just um, I, unrelated but related to showgrounds, my first professional theatre production was in the Melbourne showgrounds in the cattle pavilion where it smelt like cow shit still. <laughs> yeah, and it was a production called Tower of Light. It was an original production that was about a casino. Um, you were lucky to be in a government pavilion, even though that's also a bunch of horse shit. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yes, no, but it was actually quite fun doing a production in a space like that because especially being a kid, you know, running around and oh, look, having been there for hours on end. Doing the dark. production of Babe the Pig in the City, I, I had total rule over that site. I was the only yeah. electrician on that site on the old side of the fence. So I could do anything I wanted, go anywhere I wanted, including all the dilapidated buildings, which I often had to fix up at short notice. Quick, 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 we need somewhere that we can put the costume department. You know, or how about we just that old restaurant that's that's clapped out? Can we get that to work? <laughs> can we get those lights to work? Can we get enough 
enough power for their washing machines. So we were stealing old places and uh, just some fantastic memories of, uh, of being in that site. Uh, just an almost reverent feeling of, of being the last hurrah on that site before everything was knocked down and became modern. Yeah. Um, you know, we were using equipment that was 60 years old and everyone else didn't want to touch it because they didn't know how and they, they were scared shitless <laughs> to touch it. So they thought, well, you are not going to touch that, get Paul. <laughs> so I was the only one who would do it. <laughs> yeah. And, and you came from basically an accidental invite to come and work on this film to then ruling the electrical production on, on Babe 2, then working on Moulin Rouge. And as you say, that was everywhere in the studios. Yeah, that was a huge production, huge production, massive. I mean, basically Power Rangers was literally jumping in to the vat of hot oil and just saying, fuck, you know, this is just, is this what it's like? I I suppose after Power Rangers, there was a whole host of filmies in Sydney. We just had this trust of each other. Because mm-hmm. we'd been through the gates of hell together. And Power Rangers literally was the gates of hell. It was just like, fuck, what next? You know, the only thing we want to see is the end of it. And after we'd all done that, a lot of very, very trusting relationships were forged. Uh, because people knew you worked on that. They knew what you did on that. So straight away, they would trust you. And they say, no, I, I want him to do it because I know that he will deliver on time. And that's, there was a lot of that in Sydney after that production. Uh, if it wasn't for Power Rangers, that would not have happened and nepotism probably would have ruled. And I think Sydney would have fallen over as a, as a site for large film production. It just simply wouldn't have been able to get things happening fast enough if right. it wasn't for Power Rangers. And it created that universe of people who could trust each other. You obviously then went on to Dark City. I didn't actually work on Dark City. Yeah. I tried. I actually went yeah. to uh, to the interview on that. That was uh, the art director on that was a girl by the name of Michelle McGay. Michelle McGay did that and went on to do the Matrix. We've never really seen eye to eye. I did work with her on Mission Impossible, and and I didn't meet with her very well on that one either. And eventually walked out. <laughs> but she had a very different, uh, shall we say, style to working. Uh, she was very business orientated and uh, wanted to see everything, you know, in dollars and cents and didn't seem to understand that if you want things done fast, you can't really do that. But I also have a lot of respect for her because she was the art director on Dark City. And Dark City, in my opinion, is is amongst my top 10 most favourite films. That's bloody that brilliant. Is absolutely fantastic fantastic film it really is so good and and like quite a lot of people who worked on power Rangers came straight off power Rangers and worked on dark city yep. i didn't do it because i happened to go to the uk by the time i came back it was too late but that's all right it's not a story a lot of people i knew did work on it and once again it was just that pioneering it was also shot mostly at the showground and it was what a lot more of that pioneering stuff that power rangers started but yeah she she did some you know although i didn't like the way she worked I must have respect for the results because the results were great, both on that and on the Matrix. And, yep. and you know, you can't you can't say no to those. A lot of production people get used to working on commercials, and even I made my fair share. And we do music videos. Yeah. I, I remember distinctly doing Anthem for the year two thousand, Silver Chair, and yeah. that was like a very last minute thing. Oh, can you do this? Can you do that? We need all this. We need that. We need it by tomorrow morning. And I did that. And it, it was pay, it was money in the pocket. And yeah. you know, a lot of it was commercials as well. And that's just, you got to make money out of this stuff if you're going to survive. You can't just oh, yeah. pick the, 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 the fun projects. You've also got to make no. the crap projects as well. Yeah, I know. And I mean, yep. even Power Rangers, 
when I was handed the script and read it through and, and watched the end and how uh, how they they rebuild the command center is basically mm-hmm. as a magic wand is waved as the powers of the ninjetti and so on and so forth. And I'm thinking, guys, really? I mean, as someone who knows all about Power Rangers, we could have done better. Yeah. We could have done better, couldn't we? I just had to accept that that was the way it was and fair enough, you know. (laughs) Yeah. From a writer perspective myself, and it was something when I was writing my third novel that I pushed myself not to do, and that was to not rush the ending, to not find a quick, cheap, easy way to suddenly get out of this. You need to get in like bed that. with Baz Luhrmann and the way you ended, you ended Moulin Rouge. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't know how they were going to end it until literally the day. Oh, really? No. Nope. Oh, wow. Was, so... They were shooting a number of options and they didn't know. I was actually going to ask, to go from Power Rangers where you guys didn't know what the hell you were doing, what was the difference like then working on Moulin Rouge where I presumed that he knew what he was doing? Apparently not. Complete <laughs> mystery. I mean... There was a script, but I, I I looked at it and I thought, I can't even understand what they're going on about. I mean, I don't even understand. I didn't read it. I didn't read all of it yep. because I didn't actually understand. I just had to trust that Baz and Catherine knew, guys, this this better work. You know, <laughs> it certainly worked, though. It's a, a lesson in trusting a director or a visionary. But you see, the difference there is that it's an Australian director. Yeah. So every, everything I've worked on that's had an Australian director has just been wonderful. I mean, George Miller with Bay Pig in the City, Moulin Rouge with Baz. When it's an Australian production, it's so much better. You're not told things at the last minute. You're actually given a month to work something out. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah. like, you know, the production designers will be working in train with us. They'll they'll be telling us what's coming up. They'll be giving us all the information we need. It's not secret. And we'll get, you know, the time that we need, which is why you get the good results, because the good results take time. And if they want those good results on a budget, then, then yeah, they're going to tell us well in advance that, that that's what they want. Those productions, when I look back to comparing it with something like um, Mission Impossible 2, we actually used to call that kindergarten. That was our that was our name for that. When they rang up, it'd be like, oh, kindergarten's on the phone, because that's what it was. They had no idea at all about how filmmaking works in Australia, none. They thought we could do anything just by waving a magic wand and it would just appear out of nowhere. And as a result, half the stuff they got looked like shit because it just couldn't be done in time. You know, Paul, that's your fault because that's what you did. You got given the Power Rangers movie you waved your wand, you made it happen. So all these Hollywood executives have seen what the industry did, what you guys did then, and like, oh, shit, these guys can wave a fucking wand. Let's send them our movies because they're going to make shit happen. So that, that's on you. <laughs> You're partially correct, but you have to understand that in Los Angeles, you have a number of big prop houses. Mm-hmm. Like you have things like Modern Props, which actually is closed now. Yep. But, uh, but you know, you have about six or seven big props houses and they just have warehouses full of stuff. As a set dresser, they can literally put their hands on something now. They can literally say, right, I need this. I need this by here by four o'clock and four o'clock, yep. whammo, it's there. But we can't do that in Australia. Everything has to be built out of components which we don't have on hand. Yeah, it's a completely different story here. So quite often, even with things like Star Wars, because I didn't have a lot to do with Star Wars, uh, Graham Beattie worked on Star Wars. 
So I was uh, sort of in communication with him when he worked on that. Yep. And I also did a lot of work for them, um, setting up electrical work in the model department and so on and so forth, all their workshops. I worked for them there, but I didn't actually work on set on that one. It was yep. very secretive. They didn't want anyone to know what was going on. Is that episode two? Yes. Yes. Episodes two and three. Yeah. It was two and three. Okay. Not I, didn't, one, I knew it was one. One, one was a disastrous Jar Jar Binks one made in the UK. Yes. Yes. Which after that, they obviously turned around and said, well, we don't want that disaster again. Let's go to Australia. It's funny that because in, in around 1998, I wrote a letter to George Lucas. I actually wrote a letter inviting him to come and make the film in Australia. So I actually wrote that and he sent me a letter back. I've got it somewhere. Yeah. And he said, oh, sorry, we have absolutely no plans whatsoever to film in Australia. So I looked at it and said, oh, mate, well, that's a great letter, that one. In other words, you're coming next week. It's just like a politician saying that we're definitely not going to do something. You'll be here. Obviously, they went to the UK and tried doing that first one. Didn't have a very good experience with it. So they thought, okay, well, let's give Australia a go with two and three. Anyway, they came out. Star Wars displaced Moulin Rouge. Literally kicked us out of that pavilion at uh, stage two. The scenes had to film in Spain or somewhere. Somewhere. Moulin Rouge. Yeah. Might have been a very short pickup right at it the was. very start where he's yeah. just coming in on Montmere there. Or something in Roxanne where he's walking through the street or something. There was, it wasn't a major scene. No, no, no. Roxanne, Roxanne walking through the street was done on stage two. Okay. I was there. Yeah. Yeah. It was That's where they destroyed my big lamps. But anyway. I don't know. It's, it's on Wikipedia. So it must be correct. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose so. <laughs> Um, but yeah, anyway, aside to that, Star Wars, everything was secretive and their expectation was that you could do things on the spot. Graham Beatty by this stage was 15 years older and in his 60s and you know, pretty much ready for retirement. Yeah, yeah. His attitude was whatever. You know, he would sit there at his desk and I'd come and, you know, say hello to him every time I went in there and he'd say, oh, Paul, you know, <laughs> they bring me these plans and they literally show me the plan the day before they want it. And and it's like, it can't be done. Where am I going to get the bits? And, and it just doesn't get done. So 80% of the stuff that they wanted to do never got done. It just didn't get on the screen because they didn't give him the, the news until it was too late. So, yeah, whatever. I suppose it didn't matter for that particular one, but he just yeah. sat there and tagged, test and tag tools most of the time. And so take it for granted that everything's within the TMZ in America, in, in LA. For those at home, the TMZ obviously is the TV show and the, the, the tabloids, but it's the 30 mile zone. So that's the zone where most of the big studios mm -hmm. are. And you'll find that Miramar in Wellington, in New Zealand, where they make the Lord of the Rings movies and the Hobbits yeah, yeah. movies, the, the Stone there. Street Studios. In Miramar, there is, it's like a mini Hollywood that there is everything you need to make a film, which is quite possibly why a lot more movies are getting made in New Zealand and not in Australia. Well, that's very much, that. that is very true because over here in Sydney, it is literally always, from the very first time I can remember, it's always been a case of create what you need and yep. leave nothing behind. So at the end of every film that I've been aware of, everything has been destroyed or scattered to the four winds. Uh, it's a shame I didn't have more storage space to pick up Power Rangers. Oh, wow. Please leave me something in your will. <laughs> a whole heap of spare parts in my ooze bottle. So, yeah. Which was the ooze bottle. It was the bottle that... that Ivan used. Yeah, Ivan used. So. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was it. <laughs> Yeah, we're drawing a picture of the difference. I mean, nowadays no one cares because they don't build these big sets anymore. So nowadays uh -huh. they all just do it, do it on on in the box. Mm -hmm. But that's the way it was back then. So let's move on. Alrighty, on that cliffhanger, we're going to close up the creationarium for this week. Huge thanks to Paul Matthews for joining me in this first season. 
and for sharing his story with us. And also a special thanks to former Melbourne indie rock outfit Walken, Drew and the Boys, for letting us use their song Fish Out of Water for our theme song. So check the details below for links to their music. They've got an EP available, digital and physical. We'll be back next time with the continuing story of how Fox Studios in Sydney came to be. Be sure to check out Thrash and Treasure on the Bloop Network. It's hosted by myself and we have some of the industry's most amazing guests. And you can follow this account at Creationarium PC. So look for the details below. And to you at home, you take care and we shall see you next time. Hooroo!